Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, censoring the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how you doing today, sir? Well, I'm here. I showed up. You did show up. Yes. And I appreciate you so much for that, man. Really do. So, um, it's been a whole week, bro. Like, it has been a week. But before we, like, really dive into why that is uh, with regard to the news, let's just talk about the probably most popular or aggressively circulated story with regard to the church this week. And that is the... Uh, what happened? The handbook, the new handbook? Yes, that was the new church handbook, and it's to be accessible to all members digitally. What do we know about this, Derek? Well, for a long time, there used to be two handbooks, the handbook one and handbook two. One was for bishops and stake presidents only, and then the other one was for all other local leaders. Ah, and if I understand this correctly, both of those are going away. Both of them are going away. All right. And in the past, only one of them was available to the public. Mm-hmm. Uh, the handbook too and so now both of these are going to be merged together in a new handbook that's going to be available to the public very nice and what it looks like is that this could lead to increased transparency and clarity so you don't have two different stories of what should be done right um, local people can hold their local leaders accountable mm-hmm for what it says in the handbook because sometimes what it says in the handbook is much much more lenient than what local people are are actually doing or it's much more uh uh it's much more vague or broad right or and there's room for the spirit which right. is actually i think how these because this the handbook is not scripture uh-huh. it's it's guidelines and right. so there's there's room for being able to to adapt it to the needs of the context it, under the influence of the spirit right and I don't. We don't know what it's going to say yet, but I think this will make um, updating the handbook so much simpler because uh-huh. we've had problems with handbook updates, you know, being secret and then no one knows what's happening, and then it's really confusing and all sorts of news pops yeah. out that we don't want to have. And it seems like they've had quite a few handbook updates in the last like year and a half or so, pretty much since President Nelson got in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So this will really help. Uh, help to clear up some confusion that there may be over these over these new guidelines or just over any others that will be able to be forthcoming. Like the fact that it's going to be released digitally uh, already tells me that they probably anticipate more changes or they're planning on more changes that are going to be put in the handbook. And this will just make it a lot easier to update those, mm-hmm. update those things. Like do we, do we know if this is ever going to exist in print or has like this article specified? I thought I read somewhere that there may be a print-on-demand uh, option that if All right. you know pl- places without internet access may need to have a printed version. I think that that they would absolutely make that available okay. somehow. I'm I go I keep thinking back to the November 2015 policy change because right. all of a sudden overnight you had a change to the handbook, and I remember when this was leaked because it's an, in a secret handbook, of course. Mm-hmm. When it was leaked, there were so many faithful members of the church who said, this is so awful, it can't be true. Mm-hmm. It's some hoax, it's some fake news. And then it turns out, well, yeah, it was true. Yeah. Um, and then it was so awful, it was removed three and a half years later. Mm-hmm. But I think having this one handbook that's available to everyone will forestall news stories like this policy that we can't even believe is true can't be true you know it that was just not 
what LGBTQ people needed to go through. Yeah, yeah. I think overall, uh, I mean, you already <clears throat> you already hit the nail on the head with that whole piece of transparency. And uh, I, I don't think the church has anything to lose with being more transparent. That's something that a lot of uh, people of the millennial generation in particular have been asking for for quite some time now is more transparency with regard to policy, uh, with regard to how we uh, spend the tithing funds and, you know, just a lot of other things. Yeah, and I'm wondering, like, what will people's reactions be? Because I've seen parts of Handbook One online. They've been leaked. I think earlier editions, the whole thing has been leaked. Uh-huh. And I think I remember reading things like that artificial insemination of single sisters is discouraged. I'm like, okay. Yeah, okay. Why would that, <laughs> why would that be wrong? I don't mm-hmm. get it. Right. You know, Um but just those things, I think what it is is it's a cultural thing that they don't want to have single mothers in the church because then uh-huh. people will think, oh, they had sex, right. which maybe she's a single sister that wants to have a kid without having sex. Just like, uh-huh. you know. Uh, so, yeah, it's just a matter of what my point is that there may be a whole bunch of little things in there that if the public hears about them, they would wonder, well, why is that there? And why right. why do they have this? Because there's no justification in Scripture for single sisters not getting uh, pregnant. Uh-huh. Uh, um, and even, of course, Mary had her child, Jesus, without sex. So, I mm-hmm. mean, like, well, if it's good enough for her, why can't we have <laughs> single sisters? Like, some people want to have mothers, want to be a mother who don't have a... Uh, a partner, whether right. they're lesbian and don't have a man or they don't have a man for other reasons. Mm-hmm. I think I think what the church was afraid of is that a lot of these little things in there people would, would find to criticize and wonder, well, why is this church so weird on those things that that are more cultural than scriptural? Yeah. But I think that's part of the thing we're learning is our church has to face this issue of transparency that you get more of a problem covering it up than you do by dealing with it. Yeah, yeah. And I think we don't have, uh, we have far more to gain than we do have to lose by simply putting it out there for people. Like ultimately there can't be anything in the handbook that, that that's that bad. That yeah, there's nothing. Most of it's just really boring and procedural right, stuff. Right, uh, Or administrative stuff. Yeah, so I think overall this looks like it will be good. Yeah. A good move. I think so too. It'll be a good move. All right. Anything else to address with that handbook change? No, I don't think so. Okay. Uh, let's get into the hard stuff then. One thing we wanted to discuss this week was the uh, very untimely and you know unfortunate death of Kobe Bryant. I mean, I didn't watch a lot of basketball personally growing up, but I did pay attention to the sport, You know, especially high-profile players when they weren't on the court. And Kobe was one of those players. So I I don't want to really spend so much time talking about the circumstances surrounding his death as much as I want to talk about how people have been responding to it. Obviously, there have been a lot of people, basketball fans, black sports folks, a lot of uh, black people in particular who have been mourning the death of Kobe Bryant. And then there have been a lot of people who have been expressing outrage that Kobe was being mourned. And I had a strong, very visceral reaction to people who responded in this way, people who felt it necessary or appropriate to bring up Kobe's rape case on the day of his death. 
I try I tried to articulate why and I'm still struggling a bit, but this is this is basically what I have at the moment. The 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 outrage over Kobe's mourning feels disrespectful and a bit performative from some people. The like the majority of us mourning Kobe haven't forgotten about that rape case, and I, I'm sure his loved ones haven't forgotten it either. But he was more than that case to his family, and he was more than that case to the majority of us who are mourning him. And we've seen him grow since then. The Kobe Bryant who passed away was not the same young man he was back in 2003. In fact, he was uh, he was an advocate for black people. He was an ambassador for the WNBA and women in sports. He was a loving husband and father, and he remained the definition of tenacity till the till the end of his life. So to to disrupt mourning and just dishonor and disrespect his family and friends that lost loved ones just to express a social justice opinion seems to be in very poor taste to me. Like stripping the man of his humanity by calling him a rapist because of a mistake he made 17 years ago, knowing well and good your words could reach his family, is extremely insensitive. But, you know, I have to admit, not really shocking. Like, do we need to hold space for conversations about how money and fame insulate perpetrators and about who's elevated in the aftermath of a sexual assault? Absolutely. Can we do that while making space for redemption? Can we can we do that while acknowledging that Bryant didn't deserve to die so violently, so young, and that his loved ones are grieving? We, 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 we can do that too. Like the man and his daughter just died Sunday, and it wasn't minutes before y'all been coming, calling him a rapist and being mad that people care enough to mourn him. So like, I don't know, man. I just, I really hope people aren't so unkind to those calling to, to those expressing outrage in the day of their death that they would dare define them by their lowest moment. I have some questions for you. Yeah. How do you think the uh, reaction would have been had Kobe been white and had the same same history, same... Because my, my theory is that our culture is much more forgiving of white uh, white individuals like look at how we celebrate Thomas Jefferson who was also a rapist yeah, um, yeah. and someone who enslaved others including his own children yet mm-hmm. he he gets a pass right yeah I think there there must well I'm now answering your the question I asked you what what do you think do you think there's an element of of a double standard here that there's more forgiveness for white individuals than black individuals yeah um I I agree with your st- I agree with your theory solely on the merit that today it's a statistically indisputable fact that we still don't treat black people like they're fully human. So it stands to reason that we're far less likely to give them permission to move on from their mistakes than their white counterparts. Just last year, when Michael Vick was named honorary captain for the Pro Bowl, a petition circulated about to have him removed because of his 12-year-old conviction, which he not only served, but also he became an advocate for animal rights, and he donated to various charities. Meanwhile, we got the likes of Aja Argento, Woody Allen, and Paula Poundstone. They still have careers. Sean Spicer was on Dancing with the Stars and Amber Geiger. She's probably going to be out of prison in less than five years with a book deal and a Netflix special. Uh, More pointedly and more similarly, back in 2016, David Bowie passed away, and I didn't see anyone post a thing about him taking advantage of underage girls. Did we not have... 
social media back then was cancel was cancel culture not strong then too like yeah i i I definitely think there's a double standard and some selective outrage here so here's my next question what should white people do to show up for their black friends uh when a hero dies or how can we mourn with those who mourn and how can we yeah um either come to the funeral and mourn with us or stay home and just be quiet and give us a minute so that we can mourn in peace like it it would be horribly distasteful to go to anyone's funeral and air out the deceased's worst misdeeds in front of their loved ones you're disrespecting everyone present you're assuming they don't know that person's misdeeds or weren't affected by them even though the fact that they're even at the funeral indicates that they didn't know them well enough to know that much and you're and you're making an effort to nullify every other thing that person was and meant to those mourning at, at best at best you're you're reacting strongly to people mourning kobe because you experience trauma from sexual assault or sexual abuse. And there is certainly a space for that conversation. Like we definitely need to have a conversation about how we treat people who are rich and famous with notoriety and how we tend to insulate them from, you know, um, uh, you know, the consequences of their actions. But are, are, are folks not permitted to grieve because of trauma you experienced and that the deceased person did not cause can can you not work through that trauma without disrespecting kobe's family or the black community white white folks can mourn kobe with us or they can just be quiet and give us a minute we we already know that processing this man's death will not be possible without these conversations but we at least have the decency and humanity to acknowledge now that the man was human and have managed to postpone that conversation so that we can mourn the man's sudden and violent loss and his green and his grieving family who are now minus a father a husband and a daughter as as far as this being a black white issue you know take your cues from us like it as far as the question of what can white people do to mourn with us? Just take your cues from us. We are closer to his death than you are. And telling us that we don't get to mourn implies that you think otherwise. And there's obviously a layer of racism to that. But it suffices me to say that white folks in general should take their cues from us when it comes to um, mourning our heroes. So let me tell you about this thing called ring. I think it's called ring theory. It's about how to navigate uh how to navigate tough things when there's a crisis or a tragedy. And it's the idea that there's sort of this nested concentric circles of people who are connected to someone who's at the center, who maybe their spouse died, maybe they have a diagnosis, maybe there's some tragic thing. Okay. And then, so there's the person in the center. And then the next ring around that is the, the spouse or the immediate family members or the people who are very close to that person. And then the next ring around that is uh you know more distant family and friends and then the next next ring around that is acquaintances and then the next ring around that is like people that don't know the person at all and so i can't remember the source of this but it's really brilliant and the idea is when there's some because what can happen is you can have someone who just received an awful cancer diagnosis who then has to comfort their friend and take care of the the emotional needs of their friend when it's actually the care should be going the other way around. And so to prevent things like that, the logic of ring theory says comfort in and dump out. 
so that if if you need to vent or you need to you know unburden your stuff on someone don't dump it on someone that's closer to the person yeah. you dump it on someone farther out who yeah. can who has a little bit more distance yeah. and then you put you put comfort in so so if for example there was a tragedy in your life which obviously would make me sad too i shouldn't come with you to you to make you feel to, to have you make me feel better i should make you feel better and then my processing i should do with someone who's less dis, uh, less close to the issue Okay. So basically comfort in and dump out. And I think in this case, there's a sense in which maybe the black community as a whole is closer to Kobe than I am. I think that's fair. And so I shouldn't dump in. I should comfort in. And then if I've got something I need to work on, you know, processing the complicated nature of Kobe, I shouldn't make make my black friends do that for right. me. Right, Um and also, same thing, like, I'm not a basketball fan. I mean, Kobe, I knew of him, and I'm like, oh, that's some some really important person. But he does, uh, doesn't mean the same thing to me that he does to you mm-hmm. for a number of reasons. Um, so I think that's kind of something to note is this, this idea of there's think about what ring you're in and then comfort in and dump out. Yeah. I think that's part of, the reason why I think this is performative because like I can't help but wonder why these people expressing outrage think that they are doing anything for anybody like they're clearly not out for those who are grieving like who are they who are they expressing outrage to and what are they doing it for you know what I'm saying well I don't know if this is the right answer but from what I've seen online those who are survivors of rape or sexual assault can get re-traumatized when they hear these stories Mm mm-hmm um, especially if in their life their assailant didn't receive justice, you know, Correct. and so or they weren't believed, or they and then they, for good reason, can actually be traumatized by seeing someone mm-hmm. uh, honored in this way. Right. Uh, maybe the flaws not named, and then that just reminds them of what happened to their in their life, where their right. their assailant got away with with no consequences, or and just. It might, what they report is that it's really painful to hear these things and it just really opens up everything that's happened to them and how they weren't believed or how they didn't get justice or how they how their accuser was believed by everyone else and, and honored. And and I have to name that because this makes the whole thing complex. If, if this isn't, life isn't a children's book where there's easy answers. And so this, yeah. is, this is real. And yeah. I don't have all the good answers of what to do here. Yeah, neither do I. Like, there is a, um, like I said before, there is, there needs to be space to be able to have those conversations, space to be able to address the trauma, space to be able to address um, just, you know, the kind of patriarchal society we live in that continuously allows Mm -hmm. these things to happen without consequence, especially if the, if the accuser or if the, if the, you know, the guilty party happens to be a rich or famous person. And there definitely needs to be, you know, that space created for, for those victims and for those traumatized. Um, so, like, I don't, I don't have an answer for that. I don't have an answer for those people. I mean, I, on one level, I think this whole comfort in and dump out thing can apply. So if there's someone that I know as a survivor of violence, I'm not going to go to them and talk about how, 
this person was my hero. I'm just not going to uh-huh. say that to them. Right. Because right. they're closer to that piece of the, the trauma than I am. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's, I think, one part of it. Okay. So, basically, we shouldn't say anything to those people. Like, because we're not in a position to. Right. Yeah. And, right. and they don't need to hear me glorifying someone that was, yeah, it's, it's just really, there, there does need to be room to to have these hard conversations and to be able to have heroes that are imperfect. I mean, there's just something in our culture that w- makes us need to have uh, perfect humans. I think it was your sister who said that black people don't have the luxury of perfect leaders or perfect <laughs> heroes. No, we do not. Um, um, that's important to, to keep in, in mind. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the only thing I want to say is... Um, the only thing I want to say, just to kind of put a Christian spin back on this, is if there's anything that really stood out to me, it's just how quick people were to reduce people in death to the sum of the one mistake they made. You know what I'm saying? And I couldn't help but think of that scripture in, uh, in the Bible that says, for what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. I just hope we as Christians could consider how the savior would respond to Kobe's death and how, you know, just consider the fact that we would not want somebody to speak of us in death as our worst mistake. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to be defined by my worst mistake Mm -hmm. in death. You know, we deserve to have the full breadth of our humanity considered in our death. And that's also, I got a name in saying that, that we can't fully process the death of Kobe without acknowledging the complexity of his life but also right we can't fully process it if we are only reducing him to that one mistake yeah yeah any other thoughts about that Derek nope I think let's move on to the come follow me excellent well before we move on to the come follow me I would just want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, and arts and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Okay, so we've been anticipating this particular lesson for a long time simply because uh, of those scriptures in Second Nephi chapter 5 with regard to uh, curses and skin color. Before we get to those, though, uh, just a brief summary of what we see in Second Nephi chapter 1. This is basically Lehi providing his last bit of counsel to his family uh, before he passes on. Uh, we also get into the Psalm of Nephi in chapter 4. And then finally, we get to the separation of the, of the Nephites and the Lamanites uh, in chapter 5, which is where this talk of the curse uh, has begun and also the beginning of this talk of Nephites and Lamanites. Is there anything else in there that needs to be? Yeah, I think that's that's a good overview. All right, cool. Okay, so what do we want to start with re- with regard to this conversation? Because there's actually a lot of doctrine in these uh, chapters, like a lot of doctrine that's unique to us, particularly in uh, Second Nephi chapter 2. Do we want to talk about anything in there or anything prior to that even well let's let's go back to um one of the most important things to do in here is to situate this in the context of what's going on at the time because when we read that 
well, there's opposition in all things. We have to remember these are people who are facing the wilderness or or had faced the wilderness and had opposition and they went through some real tra- trauma. Yeah. And so they're speaking from that context. It's not just something that's completely abstract. Right. Um, and, and then when it says things like men are that they might have joy, that's also they had joy, concrete joys in their life. The joy yes. of discovering the promised land, yeah. um, the joy of being led by God. Right. That's got to be a major source of joy. OK. So that's kind of kind of where this is. But what I'm saying is a lot of these things lead to human fingerprints being all over the scriptures. Can you say more about that? Like their joys or their traumas will impact their theology. Yes. And that needs to be named. These aren't writers coming out of nowhere, out Mm -hmm. of the abstract. They're coming from particular experiences which shape their theology, which give them biases, which give them uh, things that they may overlook. Uh And that just needs to be named, I think. Okay. So what do we want to uh what do we want to start with as far as a uh, focus for second for second Nephi chapter 1 through 5? Well, where do you want to start? I don't know. I haven't I I'm not prepared to talk about anything but chapter 5. Oh, okay. <laughs> so well, <laughs> <laughs> Let me just go and and um kind of following what I up on what I wanted to say, sort of men are that they might have joy. All right. I've noticed something very interesting here is that um, let me get to where we are. Second Nephi two. Okay, so here's Lehi speaking to both uh, to speaking to his sons. All right. Like in twenty verses twenty four and twenty five. But behold, all things have been done in the wisdom of him who knoweth all things. Adam fell that men might be, and men are that they might have joy. Now earlier, you have Adam and Eve mentioned together. In verses um. Like verse 19, it talks uh-huh. about them both. And now here it only mentions Adam. So I'm wondering what the significance of that is. Was that intentional or were they just focusing on the the man? Which, uh, you know, a lot of, <clears throat> one of the most important things I learned from feminist interpretation of the scriptures is uh, this idea of the hermeneutic of suspicion. To realize right. whose voices are not there, whose stories are being left out. And what biases and prejudices are these authors bringing? Because they're bringing all of their lives and all of their context to this, right. and we can't ignore that. So I'm, I'm wondering. Uh, I'm kind of wondering what that means. Does it mean that well, Eve fell first, and then Adam by himself fell in order to have children? Because that could be part of the narrative: is that once Eve fell, she was. Uh, no longer allowed to be in the garden. And so then Adam chose to fall in order that man might be. I wonder if that's what's going on or if it's just focusing and you're sort of erasing the women's uh, whole aspect of this and and the courage that Eve showed and the wisdom that she showed and the initiative that she showed. Uh Um, And I would say the theology that she showed in prioritizing some commandments over the others. She prioritized the commandment of uh, it's not good for man to be alone. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, the commandment to be fruitful and multiply. She took those over, in, in importance, over the prohibition against eating the fruit. Mm-hmm. 
So what do you, you have any thoughts about those things? Not a lot, man. Just okay. uh, I didn't notice that uh, omission of Eve in that uh, in that particular verse, and I just kind of took that as um, I don't know. Sometimes Adam has been used as a title to refer to man. You know what I'm saying? Right. And yeah. uh, like you know, mankind in general. So I didn't I didn't overthink that particular aspect of it, but I do think there's something to be said of the fact that. Uh, when we discuss humankind or when we di- when we discuss the first people, you know, on this earth or these people that all of us supposedly come from, that sometimes Eve's name is, you know, absent. So um, I don't have any strong thoughts or feelings about that. But, you know, of course, I'm a man. I, yeah. you know, I say that I feel that uh, I can easily say that Adam is intended to mean both Adam and Eve or all mankind or whatever. Um, but that would be the easy way out. And uh you know, I'm glad yeah. you decided not to take that today. Well, yeah, you're right. Adam, do, the Hebrew word Adam does mean mankind as uh-huh. a whole species, but it also gets used as the proper name of Adam himself. And right. You have to make a choice in the context of whether you're going to translate it as man or translate it as um, human. And, you know, they already Adam. use that word man in here. So, like. You know, you could reasonably you could reasonably assume that Adam is referring to, you know, this Adam. And Adam was kind of the last piece to, of the puzzle here. You know what I'm saying? Because, mm. you know, Eve made that decision and it pretty much rested on Adam as far as whether or not mankind yeah. was going to, you know, move along. So I kind of view that as, you know, it's already implicit that Eve felt that men might be, but it kind of, the rest of it, we had to wait on Adam for, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and this whole men are that they might have joy or people are that they might have joy. Uh That has some strong implications for the LGBTQ community because there's people who think, well, we don't deserve joy. Mm -hmm. And I think the hypocrisy of their position is the fact that what's happening to my people, they would not tolerate for one day for themselves. Right. Right. They're like, Oh, you just got this problem for this life or this is a, you know, a, a temporary temptation or it's a you know all these other things that they say that they would never say to justify their exclusion from having a a spouse and family right somehow it's just it's just this minor thing when it happens to my people Mm -hmm. but it's the world to them right i mean they're entitled to it they view it as their birthright we view it as our birthright yeah and but that completely flies in the face of men are that they might have joy right uh, I mean, our whole purpose of exist- existing is to flourish and to thrive, and to to grow and develop, and to ha- and I, I just think it's unthinkable that people are asking us as queer people in the church to do something they would never, ever, ever do themselves. Right, right. And it's it's shocking, and I think what it is is ultimately they don't they don't fully view us as fully human. Mm-hmm. That's got to be what it is. It's like, they won't admit to that, but that's ultimately... They won't admit to it, but there's there's no other way around it. Right. You have because to if we're that. fully human, we should have all the same rights, privileges, and opportunities yep. and responsibilities yep. as straight people. Right. Right. Um, it's it's just unthinkable how they how they just somehow carve out carve us out as we're not we're not worthy of joy. Mm-hmm. That when you think about what the the straight antagonists in the church are trying to do to us it really denies our full humanity our full access to joy and it is uh it really betrays the fact that they don't see us 
the way they see themselves mm -hmm. because they would not tolerate what's done to us done to them right and this this language gets shown in what they say like they say oh it's okay to be single the rest of your life when they didn't do it mm -hmm. or you know you're going to be fixed when you're raised when that's not what they believe of themselves mm-hmm just everything they say betrays that they don't they don't take us seriously and that they don't that they don't really have room for us in their theology and that they like i said don't see us as fully humans and they're able to have some type of framework to deny us the joy that they take for granted mhm mm so that's kind of all i want to say on that sounds good to me man um you know, I just want to take a moment. I really love Second Nephi chapter 4. Um, I love the Psalm of Nephi. I don't think I have anything groundbreaking to say about it, though, simply because, you know, I often find myself feeling this way, you know, um, considering who and what I am. This, this is just a casual reminder to me that I may be able to acknowledge my shortcomings as a person, my shortcomings as, you know, any of these spheres I occupy as as a man, as a black person, as a priesthood holder, you know, as any of these identities that I take seriously in a spouse, but that more often than not, even though we can we can always be doing better, we're often doing better than we think because I see it all that Nephi is and all that he, you know, was during the course of his life. And for him to say things like, oh, wretched man that I am, you know, coming from the same guy who, built a bow out of a bow and arrow out of nothing when his whole family was complaining to the Lord about his bow broken or whatever, just all the things that Nephi did because he was willing to exercise faith. I think that Nephi was doing more than okay. And I just want mm -hmm. to use that as a casual reminder to anybody who is on this sojourn we call mortality more often than not. Yes, we can be doing better, but also we're doing better than we think just by the fact that, you know, we show up to church on Sunday, that you're listening to this podcast. I mean, that's evidence that you're looking for more than entertainment. You're looking for a way to further open the scriptures to you. Um, that there are just so many things we don't give ourselves credit for. And I feel like Nephi is doing that a lot in chapter four of second Nephi mm -hmm. by, yeah, being able to acknowledge his afflictions and his temptations and his sins or whatever, but also we need to be able to create a space to acknowledge that many of us are doing better than we think, and many of us, just by virtue of showing up, are on the right track. Yeah, I want to say just one thing about the Psalm of Nephi. It's interesting what it says, it's, but it's also interesting what it doesn't say. He doesn't really specify what his what he sins. Did. Yeah. And I think that needs to be named because he's portraying himself as the hero of his own journal, which, you know, I would probably do if in my journal. So, um, but, but what we don't get is, is a, a real specificity of that. And I think that I need to ask you, helpful. Derek, why would we need specificity of Nephi's sins? Because he's real specific about everyone else's sins. Yeah. And, I think it would uh, it would really help us get into what, for example, looking at it in context, two of the sins that he could have been participating in is one is um, anger because it's a right around the time of his brother's 
going after him. It's also right after Lehi's death, and so now he doesn't have Lehi there to navigate or mediate. It's now just he's the the leader. So he's in a real vulnerable place. Now he's received trauma himself, Mm -hmm. but so one of the sins, it could have been anger. It also could have been, and this is connected, what I would call either racism or ethnocentrism, because now othering the Lamanites uh-huh. and seeing them as inferior, cursed, and less than is the move that he makes. And I'm wondering, well, maybe that's what he doesn't want to name. He's he do, he's afraid to name something that he knows or should know deep down is is quite problematic. And that would be that would be significant to me. Like that is something that I think he probably should name if he is guilty of that sin, you know? And I'm over here thinking of, you know, other sins or whatever. The thing that I'm most concerned with is did Nephi's sins get in the way of him fulfilling his mission? And that's what I would want to know. Did they prolong his journey? Did they do anything Mm -hmm. of that sort? Which is why I understood the specificity of the sins that he does name of other people because they slowed their journey down. They, They caused them to stumble. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if any of Nephi's sins had caused his family to stumble during his journey. I'll, I mean, we might not ever know that. Right, because he's the one that tells the story. Right, so, he is the one that tells yeah. the story. So, uh, yeah, that is the only reason. That's the primary reason I would want specificity. Like, mm-hmm. I would want to know if Nephi did anything to slow his family's journey down. Yeah. I mean, part of what I would like about specificity is accountability, is so that people don't use those particular things as... Um, an example, like maybe his arrogance is is the sin, you know, maybe, and that's yeah. something that we don't want to partake in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Nephi is, is a complicated figure, not all good and not all bad, right? And uh, I think that's that's kind of. I, I just want to jump. I'm going to jump ahead to the whole after the manner of happiness because it relates directly to what's going on here. So in verse. Chapter 5, verse 27, Nephi says, And it came to pass that we lived after the manner of happiness. Now, that's such a cutesy thing that you would see people embroider on a pillow or something. <laughs> but when I I was reading through this reading re- this, this week, thinking, do I empathize with Nephi? Do I relate to him? Do I take his side? And he writes in such a way that, it, that you could do either. But in the end, I this is the verse. We lived after the manner of happiness that made me disconnect with relating with Nephi. As much as he loves the scriptures, that I connect with, but this really flipped the switch for me. And here's why I have such a problem with saying that we lived after the manner of happiness. Okay. Because this was right after the schism with the Lamanites, and it's right after this whole curse uh, mess that we're going to talk about in a moment. And I have a problem with that because how can he really live after the manner of happiness when his family is not whole? His literal brothers and um, are now uh, at war with him and, and they're at this state of, of hostility. And how can he be okay with that? Like what if you say, hey, Derek, um, I'm going to chop off your leg and keep it here in Boston and then the rest of you is going to go to Disneyland Okay, what if I do that and I go to Disneyland? How am I going to sit in Disneyland and say I'm Disneying after the manner of happiness when I don't have my leg? Mm-hmm. I think the real problem is here is he has um, has not really settled into the gravity of losing 
his family and his brothers. I, th I, mm. I think he should have, how can you live ha after the manner of happiness? This is, this is the one problem I have with that, Derek, because clearly if his brothers stuck around, they would have tried to kill him. You know what I'm saying? Like I liken them to a limb that needs to be amputated because if they would have stayed or if Nephi would have tried to stay with that part of his family, you know, they would have brought him down. They would have, they literally tried to kill him on more than one occasion. And in fact, at the beginning of this chapter, you know, the Lord tells him to get out because Laman and Lemuel seek to have your life. Now, if it were me, I would have gotten out of there. You know, I would have left them behind. Well, maybe he could have gotten out, but still, I don't think that you could be fully happy. Fully happy. But yeah. the thing is, he's happier without them than he would have been with them. In fact, he's alive without right. them than he would have been with them. <laughs> yeah, and, and like I said. it's not ideal. Like, sorry, go ahead. Like I said, we're only getting his side of the story. We don't uh -huh. have Laman and Lemuel's story. And we also don't have the, the women's side of the story. Uh -huh. Because if I have this right, the daughters of Ishmael married all the sons, right? And so the sisters that married, you know, um, Nephi and and... And, and the good sons and the, and the sisters that married Laman and Lemuel, they were sisters. Did they enjoy that their men were fighting each other? Like they, I don't know. I probably, I, well, I don't know, but I do know that in Aristophanes Lysistrata, which is this um, account of, it's a comedy, it's not really true, but it's an account of the Peloponnesian War and the Spartans and the Athenians were fighting each other for, for many years. And the women of both sides got together and said, we're going to withhold sex from our husbands until they stop the war. Guess what happened? They stopped the war. <laughs> there was peace, <laughs> right? I don't know what, what Lehi, I mean, what Nephi's problem with Laman and Lemuel was and what their problem with Nephi was. But I can't imagine that it's in anyone's best interest to go to a, a completely new world and then have a division. I, I just don't think that that can be tru truly count as the manner of happiness. And the fact that he's willing to write off the Lamanites is the whole problem. Or my problem with him. Mm -hmm. Just to say, well, whoops, they're cut off and they're cursed and they're lost. And I can be happy without them. I think that's a problem. No, no, you don't have to agree with me, but I really think that that's a problem. Um, I think I understand. I think I understand. Just, I don't know. I'm all for doing what people need to do for their own physical or mental health. Like, I would not want anybody to keep family around that tried to kill them. You know what I'm saying? Or anybody who, like, brings them down, generally speaking. It's less than ideal to not have things good with your family, but... I can totally buy into the idea that you can be happy without family that's trying to kill you or that has been nothing but a hindrance to your, you know, to whatever journey that you're on. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not, again, it's not ideal. I would hate to be ostracized from any member of my family that I at one point genuinely loved and cared for. But if I saw that I was going to be happier with, without them, you know, without their toxicity or without them trying to kill me, then I think it's possible to live after the manner of happiness or at least be happier without them than you could have been with them. Well, I mean, and that's why I'm glad we have a diversity of voices, even within the Book of Mormon. If you uh -huh. look at the um, allegory of the olive tree where God wants to do everything possible to rec rescue these outsiders, yes. Yes. That's, that's in contrast to this. Right. 
And I think there's there's room for both. Uh-huh. And there's room for both in the text. And that's this gets back to what I was saying about human fingerprints in the text. Uh-huh. Is everything that Nephi is saying is colored by his experience and his context. Right, right. And his limitations. Mm-hmm. And the, I'm not exactly blaming him and saying, uh, well, he should have done something else. What I'm saying is, look, this is an outgrowth of the of the, the tragic situation. He's coming out of a of trauma, he's coming out of abuse, he's coming out of a place to, yeah. to need to be safe. Yeah. And so now he's constructing this new safety as the manner of happiness. I'm this saying this new safety, this new society. There's there's actually a problem with that in the larger perspective of wanting the redemption of all people. Mm-hmm. But Nephi did did he not see in the vision of the tree of life that there was going to be a time or do we not read that until later? Because there is going to come a time once we get to Jacob that he's going to talk about how the Lamanites are eventually going to become more righteous than the Nephites. And I right. wonder if Nephi saw that in his vision. Yeah, I don't know if he knew that yet. Because it does seem it does seem to me that Nephi at some point in his vision saw that the Lamanites would be saved. Like that they would mm-hmm. receive the gospel, that there would be a time where they would have an opportunity to come unto Christ again. Yeah. Um, I have to I have to believe personally that seeing as far as Nephi did, that he did see there would be a redemption there or at least an opportunity for them to receive the gospel again. But perhaps he even knew that even though he knew the destruction of his people was coming about, he also knew that, um, you know, it would be best for his people and perhaps even for the Lamanites that, you know, that that they separate. Like, to Mm -hmm. some extent, Nephi knew that was coming. He wasn't sure when, but he knew it was going to come. And it was necessary. I don't know. That's all I got. Well, maybe this hostility is necessary, but it's also part of the tragedy of the Book of Mormon. Yeah, it's definitely part is of the this tragedy. Is, this, this ongoing thing that, that, that the split between the Nephites and the Lamanites so early in the story messed up everything for centuries and centuries and centuries. Uh-huh. I think... Uh, which speaks to things around generational trauma and the perpetuation uh-huh. of, of of abusive cycles and mm-hmm. and um, you know, the accumulation and of privilege and all these right. other things that make violence intergenerational. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm just if he ha- if he had figured out some other way of reconciling with his brothers rather than living it after the manner of happiness, which I wouldn't count as for myself as full happiness. Dude. There could. I don't know, man. Reconciliation, that word, just the word reconciliation implies that there needs to be work done by both parties. I don't think reconciliation was possible here. Like, not that, because Nephi had demonstrated that he was willing to do what the Lord would have asked him to do and that he was willing to do several things, but I really feel like this may have come down to Laman and Lemuel not being willing to do their part in making reconciliation possible. Like, most of what we what most of what we have here just indicates that there was so much pride on their side that they wouldn't accept Nephi as their ruler that they had to separate from them. Well, why do you think God sent Laman and Lemuel on the ship? Why didn't he just leave them in Arabia? Why didn't he say, "Well, you go on by yourself and live after me"? Why would he bring the Lamanites over to the new world if there wasn't hope? Why would he bring them over if there wasn't hope? Like I don't for their for their redemption. I mean, well, like if we're going to ask that question, there's other questions we can ask about why God 
operated the Garden of Eden the way he did. You know what I'm saying? I'm not under the impression that God knew what was going to happen. I, I'm under the impression that he knew all possible outcomes and he was ready for each one. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I guess so. But, you know, there's Lehi in Lehi's vision of the tree of life. Laman and Lemuel don't partake of the fruit. Right. Why didn't he say, wake up from that dream and say, you know what? You're going to cause problems. So we're just going to leave you here in Arabia. Yeah, that which I, it would have been better for everyone on under the theory that that there's no redemption for them. I feel like Laman and Lemuel's seed were necessary in the new world, like, and I feel like the Lord knew that too. But right, because the Lamanites ended up becoming more righteous than the Nephites they at did. certain points. They and did. Then, so the purpose wasn't for them to be reconciled at that time. Like, why Nephi? Like why the Lord had Lemon and Lemuel get on the boat and join everybody else. I don't think that had anything to do with their immediate reconciliation once they arrived in the new world. I feel like it had more to do with how their seed was going to relate to each other, you know, hundreds of years from then. You know what I'm saying? I don't think it had anything to do with their immediate reconciliation. Okay. Even though it ultimately led to a lot of wars between the two people. Right. And of course, of course, I have to name that the, the side that we don't hear is Laman and Lemuel's side. That is like, correct. We don't know. Like, we don't know we don't what know their, their story. story. Maybe they had, maybe they can explain why Nephi thought they were going to, he, they were trying to kill him. You know, maybe they have, <laughs> maybe they have. Because a, they tried to kill him on but, more than one occasion. <laughs> well, that's what they Nephi, said they were gonna that's kill what him. Nephi is saying. Uh-huh. But I'm wondering, like, what, it, what if their side of the story is. That, that that's not what happened, you know? That they didn't try to kill him? Yeah. That they didn't beat him and tie him up and intend to throw him off the boat? Like, you think there's a chance that Nephi might be <laughs> making that up? Well, all I'm saying is, all we have is Nephi's word on this. Okay. That's fair. I'm going to acknowledge that. It's fair to acknowledge that and, all we have is Nephi's word. And and let's go back to this idea that... that we can't just portray Laman and Lemuel as completely evil. They had reasons. No, I would never they say that. They had reasons for doing what they did. Maybe they have an explanation. I'm Maybe sure they, they do. have like some something in their history or their trauma or whatever will say this is why we felt we had to do this at that time and right. we were acting the best we could with what we could. Like we just don't even ha- they have them explaining or, at all. Right. Laman and Lemuel were very complex characters. Like, I don't believe they were evil so much as I believe they were very human. You know what I'm saying? Like, all their reactions were predictable. You know what I'm saying? I probably would have reacted the same way to a lot of their situations than... If you had an annoying younger brother? I'm just saying, if I had an annoying younger brother, in addition to just being told to go into the wilderness after enjoying so much privilege, spending eight years out there, being told to build a boat, running out of food, just... I'd probably be more apt to respond to their trials the way that Laman and Lemuel did than I would with Nephi. Like, I know that. I don't think they're evil. I I don't think they're evil. I just think they're very human. You know what I'm saying? But, like, they probably felt like they had to kill Nephi in order to, like, escape all that affliction they were experiencing. Like, that that's not totally out of the way. In fact, they indicated as much in uh, one of the chapters where they said, let's kill Nephi so we don't got to deal with this stuff anymore. <laughs> like, well, that's that's believable. You know what I'm saying? Just Okay. Well, maybe we should move on to the rest of what we need to talk about in chapter 5. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So, uh, Second Nephi chapter 5 has a lot going on here. Um, like, we just read that section, that verse in 27, referring to the uh, after effects of the split between the Nephites and the Lamanites. But uh, one thing that we want to acknowledge is just 
a piece of news that has been like bubbling up pretty much since the beginning of the year. And that's referring to second uh, Nephi chapter five, verse 21. It's been, it's been used regularly to accuse the church and even our theology of racism. And we should understand what is actually being communicated in this verse. There are a couple of different ways of reading this, uh, but um, I will, I will just share one, I guess. I'm going to I'm going to read it and then we're going to go ahead and break a couple of things down. Again, we're starting in 2nd Nephi chapter 5 and this is uh, verse 21. So this reads, and he had caused the cursing to come upon them. Yea, even a sore cursing. This is the Lord causing this cursing because of their iniquity, meaning the Lamanites. For behold, they had hardened their hearts against him that they had become like unto a flint. Wherefore, as they were white and exceedingly fair and delightsome, that they might not be enticing unto my people, the Lord God did cause a skin of blackness to come upon them. So at a single glance, this seems to be pretty messed up. Like black skin seems to be a sign of disfavor, a sign of divine disfavor. But that is both too simple and too narrow of an explanation, in my opinion, in considering the context in which skin color is discussed in the Book of Mormon. If we were to go to any other place in scripture that talks about skin color, that talks about blackness, we see the word black actually found 44 times in the scriptures, 26 of those in the Old and New Testaments and eight of those in references, uh, eight, eight of those references are to man. For example, in Job chapter 30, verse 30, we read, my skin is black upon me and my bones are burned with heat. In Jeremiah, again, or sorry, in Jeremiah this time, this is uh, 821. For the hurt of the daughter of my people am I hurt. I am black. Astonishment hath taken a hold on me. The footnote here with regard to the word black says Hebrew idiom meaning gloomy. And we see the same thing in Jeremiah 14.2, reads, which reads, uh, Judah mourneth and the gates thereof languish they are black unto the ground and they cry and the cry of jerusalem is gone up uh, the footnote here says dejected and then we see a similar use of black in lamentations chapter 4 verse 8 their visage or you know their face their countenance is blacker than is blacker than a coal they are not known in the streets their skin cleaveth to their bones it is withered it has become like a stick and then we see a similar thing in Joel chapter 2, verse 6, and Nahum chapter 2, verse 2, or verse 10. Uh, we see the word black is footnoted as a Hebrew idiom meaning gloom. Now, I took a brief moment to uh, research how black was used in ancient Mediterranean society, and it can be used to describe, it seems to be able to, it seems to be used to describe just about anything negative. I've seen it used to describe depression, uncleanness, ugliness, corruption, evil, and a plethora of other like negative things. There's an expression I found, uh, quote, to blacken someone's face, close quote, and that means to shame them in Hebrew. And just about every negative connotation can be ascribed to blackness, it seems. And whiteness, conversely, as we'll see, refers to the opposite, usually refers to purity and righteousness. Uh, Derek, anything to add, you being the Hebrew scholar here? No, but I just want to add that this is going to sound stupid to say, but black people aren't literally black and white yes. people aren't literally white. Going to get to there too. Okay. Promise I'm going to get there. Okay. Um, th this, I mean, I'll, I'll get to it now. I'll okay. just address it now. Like um, to call people black or white prior to 
the late 18th century was simply not a thing. We did not address people uh, racially by their skin color as black and white until like the late 1700s. So this idea that blackness in the in the Bible would refer to an actual race or an actual skin tone just would not make any sense anyway. Like that, like the Bible predates this conversation on using race as an identifier, using skin color as a racial identifier. So uh, that's all I wanted to say about that. So with regard to the sin, the skin color, uh, the color white, the word white is found in 104 verses of scripture. Only 26 of those refer to man. And of those 26, 18 refer to leprosy. So, um, yeah, we only got eight references to white being ascribed to actual people. And we've already read through a couple of those. One is in First Nephi eleven thirteen, where Nephi is seeing the vision of the tree of life. And it came to pass that I looked and I beheld a great city of Jerusalem and also other cities. And I beheld the city of Nazareth. And in the city of Nazareth, I beheld a virgin. And she was exceedingly fair and white. Now, let's just pause there real quick. Mary was not white. Like, Mary was in the Middle East. She was not white. She was of the seed of David. David had some dark children. Like, Mary was not white. Like, whatever Nephi was seeing, he was not seeing a white-skinned woman. He wasn't seeing necessarily a pale-skinned woman. Even still, to describe her as white would predate Nephi. It would predate, or sorry, it would predate, um, you know, just this whole conversation of using blackness or whiteness to describe people of color. Mm -hmm. So, like, Nephi using the word white as a descriptor for Mary just does not really chart, if that is the translation that we got here. Now, there's a conversation to be had about uh, whatever translation uh, Joseph Smith was using in the 1800s or whenever this was written. But even still, for Nephi to address Mary as white just doesn't make any sense because Mary was not white. Anyway. First Nephi chapter 13, verse 15 is the next one. And I beheld the spirit of the Lord that it was upon the Gentiles, and they did prosper and obtain the land of their, for their inheritance. And I beheld that they were white and exceedingly fair and beautiful, like unto my people before they were slain. And that's, uh, that's the other one. Now, the next one that we're going to read, in addition to 2 Nephi 5.21, is actually cross-references, actually cross-references back to this particular verse. This is 2 Nephi chapter 30, verse 6. It reads, and then shall they rejoice, for they shall know that it is a blessing unto them from the hand of God. And their scales of darkness shall begin to fall from their eyes. Forgot to mention this is the Lamanites talking. Or this is about the Lamanites. And many generations shall not pass away among them, save thou shall be a pure and delightsome people. Now, the word white isn't actually read in this verse, but you would be interested to know that pre-1978, the word, the phrase pure and delightsome actually used to be white and delightsome. So the fact that this cr- is cross-referencing back to here, that the word white from 2 Nephi 5.21 is cross-referencing to 2 Nephi chapter 30, verse 6, and the word white doesn't even appear here, it actually appears under this, uh, to cross-reference to this pure and delightsome people part, it indicates that white does not necessarily mean a white complexion. It may actually mean something else entirely. White could be a descriptor of something, or even white skin, or white as a descriptor of a person would mean something other than white skin. Um, So yeah, just something else to put out there. So uh, there's two more cross-references here that are worth looking at. One is to 3 Nephi 2, verse 15, again addressing the Lamanites. And their curse was taken from them, and their skin became white like unto the Nephites. 
And the new footnote in there that didn't come to post to the post nineteen seventy eight revelation for the word white goes to Jacob chapter three verse eight, which is probably the most telling of all the verses. Jacob chapter three verse eight. O my brethren, Jacob speaking, I to the Nephites, I fear that unless ye shall repent of your sins, that their skins, meaning the Lamanites, their skins shall be whiter than yours at the throne of God. One has to ask, why would God care what we look like? Like, why does it matter that our skin is white before the throne of God? We know that if we come before the throne of God, we're going to be judged. And we know that God doesn't care about that. Like, there are so many more scriptures, so many more verses of scripture in both the Bible and the Book of Mormon that indicate that God isn't interested in our physical appearance. We read just in uh, just later in the second book of Second Nephi, that uh, the Lord shall not judge on the sight of his eyes, nor reprove after the hearing of his ears. First Samuel sixteen seven. Man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Mosiah twenty seven three. There should be inequality among all men. Second Nephi twenty six twenty eight. Behold, the Lord hath commanded that, command, hath the Lord commanded any that they should not partake of his goodness. Behold, I say unto you, nay, but all men are privileged, one like unto the other, and none are forbidden. Like. I could keep going with these. Like there's more in the DNC, there's more in the Bible, but this is basically all to say God doesn't care about what we look like. That is not a consideration he's going to make at his final throne. So what is Jacob meaning when he says that he fears that their skin should be whiter than ours or that their skin should be whiter than theirs? It's not referring to an actual color of skin. It's referring to some other descriptor. And what we are left to what we are left to assume then is that this whiteness that is being referred to is uh, actually referring to purity and righteousness. And we get more of that as we read in uh, Third Nephi. We're going to see the word white again, but this time we see interesting, some very interesting uh, footnotes listed here. This is Third Nephi 1925 during the Savior's ministry among the Nephites. Third Nephi 1925, and it came to pass that Jesus blessed them as they did pray unto him, and his countenance did smile upon them, and the light of his countenance did shine upon them. And behold, they were as white as the countenance, white as the countenance, and also the garments of Jesus. And behold, the whiteness thereof did exceed all the whiteness. Yea, even there could be nothing upon earth so white as the whiteness thereof. And we see it again in verse 30. And when Jesus had spoken these words, he came again unto his disciples, and behold, they did pray steadfastly without ceasing unto him. And he did smile upon them again, and behold, they were white, even as Jesus. Now, two things that are worth noting here. One is that Jesus wasn't white. We know that much. We all but know that Jesus wasn't white. And secondly, when you look at these footnotes that uh, correspond to whiteness, they actually talk about transfiguration. Like the word white here is not referring to skin tone again. It's not referring to a race. It's referring to transfiguration. It's referring to something that seems to be, uh, that seems to refer more to purity and more to righteousness and more to things that are godly or heavenly. Like that is what the word seems to be used for here. And if you go back and you read all these verses that have the words white and black in them, you're going to see that this more or less charts. Blackness and whiteness in all these contexts does not seem to be referring to what people look like at all, but rather who they are. And that seems to chart with what we see later in the Book of Mormon when we read other verses that have other words black or white in them. And it also charts with what we find in the Pearl of Great Price. For example, if we go to Moses chapter 7, verse 8, we read, For behold, the Lord shall curse the land with much heat, and the barrenness thereof shall go forth forever. 
and there was a blackness came upon all the children of Canaan that they were despised among all people. See the same thing in 722. Enoch also beheld the residue of the people which were the sons of Adam, and they were a mixture of all the seed of Adam, save it was the seed of Cain, for the seed of Cain were black and had not place among them. So it makes a lot more sense that this blackness being spoken of here is not an actual or literal skin of blackness, not a literal race being described to these people, but rather a demeanor or a mood or a state of being, one that implies that these are people that are simply not right with God. I think that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yep, that makes sense. Sweet. All right. Again, this is all just one way of reading this, and I I haven't shared anything that uh, Marvin Perkins hasn't shared. I'm going to put in the show notes uh, his participation on skin color in uh, skin color and curses with regard to uh, these particular verses and in the Book of Mormon. But this is all just one way that we can understand what is being written in the Bible, and a lot of it rings true with me personally. Like, I really like this idea that when we see blackness and whiteness written in the scriptures, that it's not and can't actually be um, referring directly to a skin color of people. Because, again, such an idea didn't exist prior to the late 18th century. And also, we have um, demonstrably, we know that uh, there are Hebrew idioms referring to blackness and whiteness that don't refer directly or at all, actually, to a literal skin color or a race, but rather to a state of being that has some kind of uh, some t- some kind of connotation referring to righteousness or unrighteousness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the Bible, you've got this dark or black used in several ways. Some seem to refer to a skin condition or illness. Some seem to be a talking about someone being in the dark, like the not the color of them, but the color, uh, whether there's enough light around them so that right. they can navigate. Um, in other cases, it can refer to if someone's wearing black as uh, part of their mourning right. uh, culture and tradition. Right. That Those are all usages of the word black. Now, I have to, of course, p- point out that even if there were a difference in skin tone with the Lamanites, they're still not black people in the sense of being Africans. They're right. not Africans. They never were Africans. Right. Uh, they were here in the New World, um, and they also there was never any priesthood ban on the Lamanites. Yeah. Okay. So you've got so that's something that that gets conflated in our church history, but there never was in the Book of Mormon. You've got righteous Lamanites. You've got Lamanites who are prophets. You know, Samuel the Lamanite. You've got Lamanites who are heroes. So I think. A lot of the these texts get applied to African people of African descent when that's not even what they're talking about. Correct. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for for those thoughts. Yeah, again, this is just uh, one way of reading one way of reading uh, this particular text. I believe a lot of it, like the Spirit speaks to me with regard to a lot of it. Um, but you know, I'm not going to say this is the only way you can read it. It's just. One way that makes a lot of sense to me and helps me make sense of what I see in the scriptures when it comes to blackness and whiteness being ascribed to people. Yeah. Could I share a quote from this is from the Book of Mormon for the least of these? Yes. Who are the authors, Derek? Uh, Fatima Saleh and Margaret Olson Hemming. Yes. And um, and they're they're writing from from a perspective of thinking about this very thoughtfully and very uh, personally connected to this co- topic, but here is what they say on 
page 66. This is the section on Second Nephi, chapter 5, verses 21 through 25. I'm not going to read it all, but this part I want to read carefully. Qu um, this, this section of the Book of Mormon is difficult. Nephi's anger and racism is laid bare, and his words are distressing. Getting to a productive place with these words takes some time and a great deal of effort. In further examination, there are some factual errors to Nephi's claims based on what Nephi has already written. Close quote. And then I'm not. I'm just going to summarize this. Uh, the authors note that there's some sort of tension or contradictions in what Nephi is saying because um, that they were already idle and mischievous before their skin supposedly darkened. Um, and then the second challenge is that that. It doesn't ring true that the Lamanites were idle because Nephi talks about their whole civilization. And then the condemnation of the Lamanites for hunting in the wilderness for, for beasts for their food, that's also a contradiction because Nephi did the same thing. So what the authors here are saying is there's some problems underlying what Nephi is even claiming. Right. <coughs> and um, now I'm going to uh, read verbatim again. Carefully examining these claims together leaves the reader wondering what is lying beneath the surface of Nephi's angry accusations and socially constructed racism. It appears that post-schism, Nephi continues to resent and fear his brothers and their families. This is understandable as Nephi endured so much trauma at their hands, and his people begin to battle with the Lamanites almost immediately after the separation. Nephi seems to be taking that lingering resentment and building a case against the Lamanites. He is reframing the narrative, attributing their behavior to skin color when his account states otherwise. Because, well, I have to say, a lot of the bad stuff they did, is now my words, a lot of the bad stuff that they did was when they were white. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, uh, now I'm quoting again. He is reframing the narrative, attributing their behavior to skin color when his account states otherwise and pointing out every possible trait he can criticize. Close quote. So, so this is a different sort of take on this. This is reading the text with more suspicion and saying, look, um, even though modern racism and the way we – obviously races are socially constructed and they constructed yeah. things differently in the ancient world. Yeah. But they did have ethnocentrism in the ancient world. They did have tribalism. And Nephi is slipping into some of this, and um, uh, and that that needs to be named. And we can just sort of let me just go on just real quick. Um, and then the authors here talk about couching couching this trauma and putting all this anger and and which is in some ways valid, but the the mistake Nephi makes is that claiming that God has cursed the Lamanites because now he's invoking God and putting God's name on his sort of problem. Mm -hmm. And um, and here's here's what the authors say. The moment he takes his disgust and deep hurt and decides to stamp God's name on them in the, um, in theologically he is in theologically dangerous territory. It is not okay to weaponize prophetic call. Serious harm can come from not being able to separate personal bias and feelings from the divine. Those who follow God need to be rec need 
need to recognize and separate their own prejudices, their own racism, their own sexism, their own homophobia from the divine. As humans, we share th these tendencies and must continue to resist the urge to throw God's name around in an effort to endorse prejudice and discrimination. Close mm -hmm. quote. So Nephi wasn't perfect. His access to the divine wasn't perfect. It was colored by his his own tribalism, his own trauma, and his own stuff. Mm -hmm. And we have to remember, even though he's a prophet, prophets make mistakes, and they don't perfectly right. understand God's will. If right. we wouldn't be in this problem, if if our prophets in in the in the nineteenth and twentieth centuries had gotten this right, mm -hmm. right. So there's there's advantages and disadvantages to almost every approach to this. Not yeah. every uh, not every approach is going to answer all of our questions. Not mm -hmm. every approach, even if it's true, will be convincing to all audiences. Yeah. Um, not everyone's going to be ready to hear everything. So I think what I'm glad is that there's room for different people with different experiences to bring their expertise to the text mm -hmm. and navigate it. But in all cases, we should have the result that you cannot use the book of the text of the book of mormon as it is to reinscribe and reinforce racism correct either the text is talking about something else or the text is is limited and imperfect and reflecting nephi's own problem which we should not replicate yes sir. i think there's room for uh for both of those to be heard yes sir and before we move on completely from this, I do want there to be a acknowledgement of this uh, curse that is spoken of in uh, in the Book of Mormon. Now, I mean, I'm not Doctor Fatima, so I do not. I'm not going to suppose that I have an understanding that she doesn't have with regard to what this curse might be or what this curse from God is. I am going to invoke what ha what uh, Marvin Perkins seems to say about it, and one that really sits well with me in terms of what this curse is that supposedly God has put on the Lamanites. Now, the way I understood this, as far as curses go, actually goes back to what's written in 2 Nephi 5, uh, verse 20. Like this curse that seems to be spoken of, 2 Nephi chapter 5, verse 20, seems to be hinted at greatly in this verse. It reads, Wherefore the word of the Lord was fulfilled, which he spake unto me, saying that inasmuch as they will not hearken unto thy words, they shall be cut off from the presence of the Lord. And behold, they were cut off from his presence. Anytime we see the word curse used, when we read about the uh, curse of Adam and Eve, when we read about uh, uh, Cain's curse, it is always mentioned in close proximity to being removed from the presence of God. Uh, we read curses in Alma, about Alma chapter 3, verse 18 through 19, that every man that is cursed bring upon himself his own condemnation. I don't read this as God putting a curse on people, but rather God's hand being forced by people who choose to distance themselves from him. Like if you sin against God, you in essence curse yourself. That is, you cut yourself off from the presence of God. That's how I read this. That is how I read into the curse. I don't read the curse as the skin of blackness. I read the curse as a simple separation from God. In fact, when we come back to this in uh, Alma 23 and 2 Nephi chapter 30, verse 6, that the curse was being removed from them, that the scales of blackness fell from them, this, in, this implied not only a spiritual re-enlightenment, but also being welcomed back into the presence of God, or rather being able to tarry with the Holy Spirit, which is how I read into the curse. When, the, when I read that the curse is being removed from people, 
I read that the Holy Spirit is able to tarry with them again, that the Lord is being able to communicate with them, that they're no longer cut off from direct communication with God, that they're not cut off from the presence of God. So, yeah, curse, in other words, and in short, is separation from God. And another reading strategy is to remember that there's diversity in the scriptures, and there's not, there are not only these texts that appear to be racist, but there are also anti-racist texts in the in the Book of Mormon and Jacob yeah. about not reviling against people based mm-hmm. on the color of their skins. And of course, yeah. there's the major Second Nephi twenty six thirty three that says, "Black and white, all are alike unto God." That should be the end, you know the beginning and the end for, to me the beginning and the end of this conversation mm-hmm. is leaning on the texts that you understand well and not building. Uh, on shaky foundations in these other texts that are quite controverted and we're not sure and we're not in agreement as to exactly what they they mean but leaning into the very clear texts where god clearly says um black and white all are alike unto god mm-hmm. very good okay so i mean we could we could really prolong this conversation <laughs> but we're we're already at time. Yeah. Do want to encourage you guys, though. Um, again, we're going to put this in the show notes, like the link to Marvin Perkins' uh, presentation on this matter. And also, we linked it a while ago, but we'll, I guess, put an Amazon link to this Book of Mormon for the least of these because uh, so far from what I've read in it as a study companion to my Come Follow Me study has been powerful and super enlightening, and I can't recommend, can't recommend it enough. So be on the lookout for that. Just Yeah, it's, it's great. And I have to admit, I'm not coming to this as a black person, mm-hmm. but I am coming to this as a queer person who sees texts in there that are used against me. Yeah. And some of those texts, uh, what am how am I trying to say? Are speaking, are spoken out of the limitations and prejudices of those authors. And so that's kind of something that I've, I've had to accept is that our prophets are going to be imperfect. Our prophets today are imperfect on this, right? Yeah. I cannot, there's no way for me to exist in the church and claim that our prophets prophets are perfect. So in order to survive, I have to say and be open to saying things like, well, maybe Nephi was racist. Mm-hmm. I have to have that in my toolkit because mm-hmm. I, because of how not, uh, it's not obviously not the same thing, but I have to be able to admit that prof- prophets can, uh, can be an extremely prejudiced and extremely limited and not, f- um, and haven't done the work to qualify for new revelation on this issue. And so that's kind of where I'm coming at this, not as an expert on the lived experiences of black people. Thank you for clarifying. Appreciate it. So yeah, if you guys want to discuss this further, as always, feel free to reach out to us on the interwebs. You can reach out to us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. You can reach out to us on Facebook, add us on Twitter, uh, find us on Instagram as well. You can DM us there. But uh, we're always happy to have this dialogue with folks, assuming you guys can't get a hold of Dr. Fatima or Marvin Perkins or Darius Gray. We're here. We're here. And we're not as popular as them. So we're probably the best bet you guys got. Uh, Anything else on this before we... No, that's it. All right, cool. Well, before we wrap up, just uh, one more thing we want to let you guys know about, which is the Gospel Tangents podcast. Um... 
They are a podcast that explores Mormon history, science, and theology from the best experts in the field. They talk to witnesses of history, BYU professors, apostles, and hopefully eventually prophets and presidents from the many different restoration branches and non-believers to cover a 360-degree view of Mormonism. Derek, what do we have for housekeeping? Well, you can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yes, and uh, we are going to be at the um, Black LDS Legacy Conference in two weeks' time. That's going to be Valentine's Day weekend. If you guys are in the DMV area, we'd love to see you guys. It'll be at the Washington, D.C. Visitor Center in Kensington. Um, it's going to be a great event. This is the third year we've been having it, and it is amazing. I can't recommend yeah, it enough. I was great. I was there the first year, and it was really great. Really great. Yeah. Dr. Fatima is actually going to be there. I Yay. plan on bugging her with all my questions. Great. So, like, you know, I co she and I co spoke together uh, one after the other at the 2018 Affirmation Conference. I did not know this. That's so cool. Yes. We were both the plenary speakers for the uh, Sunday morning devotional. Sweet. Yeah, and I spoke first. I'm glad I spoke first because hers was way better, <laughs> and I didn't want to go after and and have that comparison. Yeah but, yeah, but I I also really set up for what she was saying. I think quite well, and it really mm. flowed. Did Did you see either of our talks then? I saw your talk. Okay, I did well, not see Doctor Fatima's. Well, hers is hers is better. Okay, <laughs> and so go back and listen, and all you listeners out there too, go listen to both of those talks. Okay, uh, just we get can those send talks. a link. Excellent. We will send the link then. And, uh, of course, if you're in the DMV, come see us as well because Derek and I will be sitting on a panel there on Christian social justice. So definitely be peeping that. I would want to go to it anyway, but um, since we're going to be sitting on it, all the more reason to attend. So hopefully we'll see you guys there. Anything else, Derek? Nope, that's it. Sweet. Then we will see you guys next week. See you next week. Bye.